Hello, this is Rob and Mike from the McClellan Financial Group of Asante Capital Management, and this is Think Smart with TMFG. Today on Think Smart with TMFG, Mike and I are going to be discussing all the mistakes that you can make when registering your different registered accounts. Mike, registered accounts are something that Canadians are very familiar with. Um, A registered account is something like an RRSP, Registered Retirement Savings Plan, or a RIF, a Registered Retirement Income Fund, a TFSA, a Tax-Free Savings Account, or even an RESP, a Registered Educational Savings Plan. And one of the things that happens with each of these accounts is they all have different ways to set those accounts up, and often a lot of mistakes are made. So tell me what are some of the good rules around, let's say, RSPs and RIFs? What, what, how should you set those accounts up? Well, let's start off with a few definitions because, you know, we always use the term because we're in the industry annuitant, right? And most people don't know what annuitant is, right? So I always think of it as annuity. Like if you get paid out annuity, you're the one that's going to benefit from, uh, from the money. You're actually basically the owner of the person. The annuitant would be the person who owns it. And when you go into spousal accounts and things like there, there's going to be a donor, that's going to be, let's say, the spouse. If it was a husband put into a wife's spousal RSP, uh, the wife would be, let's say, Jane Smith is the annuitant of the spousal RSP, and the spousal contributor would be John Smith. He put the money in, but later on, once taken out, the benefit of it is going to go to uh, to Jane, right? So that's sort of the definition of annuitant. And if you have your own RSP, you're the owner and annuitant. There's sometimes things that gets a little bit confused is the second piece is there's a successor annuitant, which is the person who would take it over it. And then there's the term beneficiary. And those are two different things. So think of the successor annuitant is the next owner of a plan. So if there's one owner and that owner passes away, it goes to the successor. And then the successor annuitant then becomes the owner of the plan. Now, a beneficiary is a different type of situation. Again, it's in the case where one person passes away. If you pass away your RSPs or your TFSA and you name a beneficiary, they're going to get the benefit of the value of that account. So it's starting to get complicated already between successors and annuitants and, and mm-hmm. beneficiaries. So let's go back a little bit. You know, when we started in the industry, all you needed to worry about was the beneficiary. Simple. It was really simple. You had an RSP. If you died, who's the beneficiary of it? And if it was your spouse, they got that money tax-free. If it was dependent children, they were under the age of 18, they got it tax-free. And everyone else, there was taxes going to be due when you cashed in that RSP. The government decided that wasn't simple enough. So they've come up with some new, new ways to do things. So the new one is, as you say, it's called successor annuitant. And so the best way to register, uh, let's call it a RIF account, so you've got a registered retirement income fund, is to have your spouse's successor annuitant. So if I died, my spouse, my wife, would then be the one who has that account. It would be her account. And it goes through, if it's a spouse, it goes through tax-free. And again, it's just as if they took over. It's like nothing ever happened. It just becomes their account. So it's very smooth. 
The reality is even the beneficiary designation still allows all this to happen in the same manner. It just creates a lot more paperwork, a lot more complications, and it, to be honest, it just makes things more complicated. So the recommended strategy is to go with successor annuitant. Much better. What are some other considerations? Let's say you, you have no children, okay? And so you would make your spouse as the beneficiary or the successor annuitant, but would you have a secondary beneficiary? Yeah, you can have a secondary beneficiary. I'll give you where this is important. Uh, with older people, it's many times important because you don't know the condition that the spouse would be in when they receive that account. And sometimes the, the one spouse would die and the other one may have Alzheimer's. When they have Alzheimer's, they can't name a beneficiary. They're no longer capable of making that decision. So along the line, when you name your spouse as your successor annuitant, you could also have an idea, say, just in case anything was going on there, I wanna make sure that there's a beneficiary name beyond that. What about if you don't have a spouse? Who should be the beneficiary? Let's say you have no spouse, but you do have children. So, so children is nice to have those beneficiaries. It avoids the will, so it skips through the will. It's not part of the will, which is nice because it's invisible. A will is a public document, but beneficiaries are not a public document. So if you want to leave someone to some money to someone and not have it uh, put out in public, uh, public knowledge and public records, you can name this a beneficiary on the accounts. Uh, you still, if it's RSPs or anything like that, still has to go through the tax of the original owner. So you're still paying things at your tax rate. If it was a tax-free savings account, it would be tax-free because it's tax-free investment. There's a few other little stipulations in there too. If you have an underage child or a, a minor child or dependent child, if you name them as a beneficiary, it has a whole bunch of different rules about it. They can take it out over a period of time up to their 18. And I believe if you have a dependent child that is uh, fully dependent on you because of a disability, you can leave your RSPs over to them and that will- Tax-free. Tax-free, it will go Regardless through. Regardless of their age. Yeah, so, so there's a bunch of little rules for special situations. You and I come across a lot of accounts that just aren't set up properly. And, and so this is pretty common. We take over a, a new client and, and we, we look at the account registration and it's not set up properly. For whatever reason, maybe you have an, an ex-spouse that's listed as the beneficiary. Maybe someone who's not even alive anymore is listed as the beneficiary. So it's really important to get these things straight. What about tax-free savings accounts? So tax-free savings accounts, you know, the limit this year is $6,000. The total limit since they started these things in 2009 is now $81,500 that you could put into your TFSA. So some of those TFSAs are approaching 150,000 or more. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Who do you make the beneficiary of your TFSA? If you have a spouse, well, I mean, to start off, successor uh, annuitant should be the spouse. Uh, beyond that, you have the choice to make it the kids. Uh, another interesting planning thing is People have used that in many cases to leave money to, to certain people that they want to help out over life. Because again, it doesn't have to go in the will. So you can leave it to your kids, but whoever you leave it to, there's no advantage to leaving it to your kids. I mean, if you designate a beneficiary, you're gonna vote probate fees, but you can leave it to your kids, you can leave it to someone who's important to you, or you could leave it to a charity. And again, that's gonna give your estate a tax deduction in there too. So there's a lot of choices in those tax-free savings accounts. So I've had a few examples where clients have passed away over the last few years and they used to have $120,000 each in a TFSA 
Now one spouse is left and they've got 200, $250,000, $260,000 in that one TFSA account. And that's because the account was set up properly. The money rolled in to the spouse's account because they were the successor holder. And you can have multiple beneficiaries too, which gives you an advantage if you want to leave, let's say, a certain amount of money to a charity and uh, you try to estimate where your TFSA would be, you can get a percentage like 20% of your TFSA. Usually we say do not leave percentages in your will because if you leave a percentage to a charity in a will, they're required to audit the estate and find out what everything's worth. Because a TFSA or anything like that has a specific value, if you say 20% of my, uh, of my TFSA is going to go to the Canadian Cancer Association, it's just set up. It's easy for them to do. It's just 20% of what that value is gets sent out to the Canadian Cancer Association. A lot simpler than have anything like that inside your will. Definitely. What about open accounts? So open accounts, we call them multiple names, open accounts, investment accounts, cash accounts. It's money that's not registered. So what, are, what is the best way to set that up if you're married? Oh, joint tenants with rights of survivorship. So joint tenants, meaning they live together, Yep. and right of survivorship. So if one of them passes the away, it becomes the other individual's account. Yep. Now, the account needs to get re-registered in their name, but it literally rolls over without any tax implications. Yep. Is it a good idea to have multiple names on the account? What about putting your children on the accounts? Well, you get in a lot of problems there. Number one, from what you create a very gray area in taxes uh, from your, for your accountant side of things. There's income attribution rules, but it gets very complicated. Uh, the second piece you have is now you take on the liability of any of your children. If your children get sued, that's now an asset of them. If they have a marital breakdown, that's one of their assets. So it opens you up to a lot of risk and we find it's just not worth it. What about just leaving the account in the individual's name? Like what if I put, you know, Rob McClelland open account? Why would that not be a good strategy if I'm married? Well, you're subject to probate fees. So if it has to go to your spouse, the government's going to take one and a half percent to pass that asset along to your spouse. Plus, it's going to be held up for six months while probate clears. You know, joint tenants with the right of survivorship, literally within a week from when we find a client passes away, it's in the surviving spouse's name and all set up and running. And there's never any, uh, it doesn't miss a step in between. What about RESPs, Registered Educational Savings Plans? We've been dealing with them over many, many years. Should you have an individual RESP or a family plan? Families are much better. They just give you more options. You know, there, there's, again, it's more of a logistic side of things because you can move things if there are separate ones. You can still move them family members. That's a ton of paperwork and a ton of confusion. If you have a family RESP, there's no disadvantage. So in all these things that we're saying, uh, when we suggest, let's say, a successor annuitant or we suggest family RESPs, there's really zero disadvantage to it. And there are disadvantages to the other piece. So this gives you all the advantages, none of the disadvantages. There's really no reason not to set anything up that way. So what about your house? Why might you ha- put your house in one spouse's name and not the others? Some, a lot of business owners do this if they're at risk of being sued. They want to make sure their, their house is a protected asset. So you see that uh, many times. Uh, I mean, from tax treatment, even if you put in your own name, people get confused. They think that it gives you double principal residence. Uh, it doesn't. You know, you're only allowed to have one principal residence. If your spouse has a name in their name and you have a, one in your name, only one can be designated as your principal residence. 
It's interesting. I actually think our, our house is registered in Ingrid's name, our cottage is joint. So, you know, I was worried about being sued. Um, luckily, touch wood, I have yeah. never been sued. And that's my plan for life to never be sued. I, I don't know whether I need to change it, but probably at some point it might be worthwhile to go and do an adjustment on it. Yeah, because nowadays it would start to make sense because of the value of homes, right? If you get a home, it's two or three million dollars, which is an expensive home right now. And if you figure three million dollars at one and a half percent, you're hundred fifty thousand dollars in a fee. Like that's nothing, just a fee to pass your. This is for the government to fill one form and take your house and move it from your wife's name to your name. They're going to charge you hundred fifty thousand dollars to do that. It's insane. You've deemed to have sold the house. Yeah. I mean, you don't have to pay tax on it, but still, that fee is insane for one one paper transaction. What about making your kids as you know, and if you've got a primary resident, you know, we've got three kids. Should we make should we make them joint owners of the cottage or joint owners of the our house, which is our primary resident? What should we do there? What are your thoughts? And just to correct myself, sorry, it's forty five thousand dollars and three million. I was thinking that probate fee was expensive. <laughs> so on a three million dollar house, you'd be about forty five thousand in probate fees. But would you have to pay a land transfer fee? Usually not between uh, spouses or anything like that. Usually they have a, they, uh, depends on where you're doing it, but usually for, I think it's called for love and uh, for love and admiration or something, you can transfer houses between family members without land transfer taxes. So let's go back to the question. Should you bring your kids in to ownership of properties, a vacation property, a, a, your primary residence? I think it's more clean to do a sale when the kids, if there is a child that wants the property, I think sometimes it does make sense to start that process before it becomes an estate issue, but I think it should be done as a clean buy. Uh, Maybe the parents hold a mortgage or something like that, but when the child has the ownership, they should also take the responsibility of it too. And that makes it more fair for the families. And plus the big thing is the bills disappear. Right, and uh, when that comes over, a lot of parents say, "I'm going to throw my kids on everything," and they're still paying all the bills. And they're a situation they don't use the cottage anymore. They're paying for all the upkeep, and the kids are having it in their name. And you got to have a sense of fairness too. So if one child has the cottage grown in their name, they they should have uh, they should have uh, the money put out for that. So, long and the short of it, you can make a lot of mistakes in terms of account registration. Some mistakes that are really difficult to to recover from. And costly. Especially when you're taking some of the biggest assets that you own, your house, some of your investment accounts, et cetera. Are there any extra tips that we thought we might provide that, you know, a couple of things that we do for our clients to take advantage of? Fees, you can direct your fees. Uh, a neat thing to do is if you charge your your TFSA fees to your open account, it allows that TFSA to grow tax free. Not a big deal, but it helps you out a little bit over time. So if you're paying a 1% fee or a 1.5% fee, that TFSA account will grow that much faster tax free. Yeah. So that helps out a bit. Other things, RIFs, when you have a, taken a RIF payment, you can choose to take the younger spouse as the age base for the payments, which allow you to take a lower minimum payment, creates less taxable income for you along the way. I think that's really important, especially if your spouse is quite a bit younger. If they're five or 10 years younger, you should always do that. It just gives you more flexibility. And, and so that's, those are some things that we've learned over the years that really work. And also maximizing low tax brackets. That's something we always talk about. You know, Canada is, we're known as an expensive nation in tax. We're very expensive for people working and making decent money. 
we're actually a very cheap country if you're a senior citizen who's on average income. It's not that expensive a country. If you make you know $30,000 a year, your marginal tax rate's only 20%. Your, your, your flat tax rate's gonna be somewhere around 10%. It's pretty low. And when you get into that, if someone has low income, they don't have a lot of pension income, sometimes you can bring up that taxable income on some very low tax rates. So are you saying that you think our retired clients are getting a good deal? I think that's a dangerous road to go down. <laughs> I see the tax returns. <laughs> I think we should end the podcast right there. That brings us to the end of another week. Thank you for joining us. This is Rob and Mike with Think Smart from the McClellan Financial Group of Asante Capital Management, reminding you to live the life that makes you happy. listening to the McClellan Financial Group of Asante Capital Management Limited. Asante Capital Management Limited is a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and the Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada. Insurance products and services are provided through Asante Estate and Insurance Services Incorporated. This material is provided for general information and is subject to change without notice. Every effort has been made to compile this material from reliable sources. However, no warranty can be made as to its accuracy or completeness. Before acting on any of the previous information, please make sure to see a professional advisor for individual financial advice based on your personal circumstances. The opinions expressed are those of the authors and not necessarily those of Asante Capital Management Limited.